six. This is what we're going to tackle today. And um, I, so as we kind of have moved through the Psalms, we've just sort of been cherry picking uh, a Psalm here every week. And, and 146 is basically at the end of, of the book. It's, uh, there's 150 chapters in Psalms um, or 150 songs, poems, uh, hymns. This is, a, this is a book that was compiled um, that, that was meant to be used in corporate worship for the people of Israel, the congregation, as they would gather to the Lord. And so they would read these psalms together. They would sing them together. We don't have the music uh, preserved for us. We just have the words. Uh, but, but really, the heart of the psalms is worship. It's, it's how do we worship God? How do we respond to God in worship? And, and, and here's what one, Psalm 146 addresses. It, it really hits home on the issue of worship, and particularly this, that true worship is the response of the human heart to what God has done for us in Jesus. That really is the heart of worship. It is our response, our, our heart response to what God has done for us. And, and we know that what he's done for us is all in Jesus. And so as we walk through Psalm 146, it's not a long one. It's only 10 verses. Um, and there's, there's predominantly two sections in it, two overarching ideas that, that come through. So it's not going to be a real, like, complex thing to work through. It's very simple and yet really, really profound and important. Um, and what we're going to see is really that true worship is our response to what God has done for us in Jesus. So let's start in verse 1 and 2. And this is just kind of the, the beginning point of the psalm. It's very simple. It says, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. So again, the whole theme of Psalm 146 is the praise of God. Right? And it, it's drawing our hearts to praising him with our soul, with who we really are at the very core of our existence, praising him all our days, praising him while we have life in us, right? Giving, giving God glory, that's the whole thing within this, this psalm. And, and so then it goes from there into really the, the meat of this verse 3 and 4. And this, we're going to spend some good time on these two verses. It says this, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. And, and so here, in these two verses, we have a very huge and foundational uh, a truth that we need to really get into our hearts. And that is this, that true worship begins where self-saving ends. True worship begins where self-saving ends. We will never worship God the way that he wants to be worshiped or through the person of Jesus Christ if we believe that we can save ourselves. We just never will. As long as we're holding on to some delusional myth that we can somehow 
fix our problems, solve our lives, fix everything that's wrong with us, get ourselves to heaven through our good works, etc., etc. As long as we hold on to those beliefs, those lies, those false truths, or whatever you want to call them, we will never worship God in the way he deserves to be worshipped. True worship begins where self-saving ends. So look at what what it says in verse 3. It says, put not your trust in princes. So here's the thing. This is not a new thing. This psalm was written probably, I don't know, three, four thousand years ago. I don't know, a long, long time ago. Um, And what's being, what's being stated there, do not put your trust in princes, is the same problem that we have today, especially this time of year, as things fire up with politics. What, is, what are we always told? This candidate will solve all your problems. No, they won't. They're going to make more problems because that's what they do. <laughs> that's, they're humans. They make more problems. No, no matter whether you're happy with the person in the Oval Office or not, they are not the savior that we need. You may like policies, you may hate policies, but they're not your savior. People back in, in this, these days had the same problem. Now, they had a different form of government. They had a, a monarchy, right? So they had princes and kings and rulers of, in that, that way. We have a democracy of, of sorts, but, but so we get to choose and have a, have a say in who leads us. But the same principle applies. We can't put our trust in princes. We can't put our trust in people, politicians or otherwise. We, we have to realize the limitations. And in fact, you, you see that all throughout the Old Testament. It's, it's basically, especially as you get into the Kings and the Chronicles, those books just highlight the reality that even the best kings fall short of what they ought to be. David, the best king Israel had up until Jesus, was, was a failure. Uh, we, we all ha- have to recognize this, that we cannot depend on other people to, to solve the problems that only God can solve. We can't depend on politicians. We can't depend on the people sitting next to us. Ultimately, we should be able to lean on people Right? We need other people. God has created us for community, but not to meet our deepest needs. Our deepest needs have to be met in Jesus and only in Jesus, and then we can reinforce those things that Jesus does for us through the body of Christ, the people that he places in our lives. And so we have to realize that, that ourselves and other people can, cannot do what only God can do. That's point number one in these verses. It kind of doubles down in the end of verse 3. It says, put not your trust in princes, okay, or in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Now that son of man, of course, is a, is a broad term that just means another person, a human person, someone who lives on the earth. Jesus identified himself as a son of man and son of God because he was both. We're not, uh, we're not able to say in the same way that Jesus says that he's the son of God. We can say we're sons and daughters of God in an adoptive way, uh, but, but Jesus was truly son of God and son of man. However, in this context, son of man is referring to a person who lives on the earth, who claims to be able to bring salvation, but can't 
do not put your trust in, in the Son of Man in whom there is no salvation. He, here's what we need to, I think, wrestle with on this particular line. It's, it's that we fall into that category. Right? We, we can, some of us can, can put our problems on the shoulders of others and in hopes that some political leader can solve our problems. But I think most of us uh, don't lean on that as heavily as leaning on ourselves. Here's the thing. You are a son of man and you cannot bring yourself salvation. And so you shouldn't trust in yourself. You shouldn't trust in you because you can never save you. That's, that's a hard pill to swallow. That's a hard pill to swallow. It's, it's, it, it's about coming to the end of yourself and recognizing that you can't do for yourself what only God can do. And so we have to recognize the, the shortcomings of ourselves. In verse 4, it says this, When his breath departs, he returns to the earth to the very day. On that very day, his plans perish. Here's the point, right? That there's no salvation in, ultimately in someone who is going to die. And, and when he dies, that all the plans he had are gone, right? They're gone. And so the, the, there's a, such a fleeting nature to humanity that, that putting our trust in ourselves or in other people to do what only God can do is a very, uh, it's a, yeah, it's just a fleeting uh, attempt. It's weak. It's, it's not going to actually accomplish anything. And so we can never save ourselves. Here's the other thing. We can never battle sin in the power of the flesh. We think that by our own strength, we can muster enough willpower to overcome some sin or some problem in our lives. But you're never going to be able to accomplish that in the flesh. You, you need someone that has greater power than you to overcome the sin that's in you and the sin that's affecting you from outside. We, we cannot battle sin in the power of the flesh. We have to depend on the Spirit this is why uh, Paul makes such a contrast in the book of Galatians in chapter 6 where he's talking about the fruit of the Spirit. Well, prior to talking about the fruit of the Spirit, he talks about the works of the flesh. He says the works of the flesh are evident. And he gives this long list of things that, that are the outcome of us trying to work ourselves uh, into salvation. And all we do is mess it up. All we do is ruin it. And, and yet, if we walk in the Spirit, he says, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. We, we need the Spirit of God and only Him to, to, to truly change our situation and to change us. We can't count on ourselves. We can't count on our spouse. We can't count on our children or anyone else to fulfill us ultimately. We only have Jesus Whatever it is that we're trying to fit into this, this space that we feel is empty, if it's not Jesus, it's never going to satisfy. It's never going to fulfill. It's never going to work. We cannot save ourselves. True worship begins where self-saving 
ends. And if you want to flip over quickly here, just keep your, your hand in Psalms 146. But if you flip over to, to Romans chapter 9, Paul really makes this point uh, really strongly here. He, he says um, at the end, the very end. So Romans 9, and just the context of it, he's addressing the question. He's writing to the church in Rome, which is a church made up of uh, Gentiles and, and some Jewish people as well. Um, they, so they have very different cultures, different backgrounds, different experiences with the Lord. And, and, they're, and, Jesus, and, and Paul here is just trying to deal with how the Israelites are not coming to Jesus as they ought to, at least not in the, the mass that, that they think that they should. And, and so what he does here is he spends a lot of time talking about that issue, but wraps it up with verse 30 and through 33. And here's what he says. He says, what shall we say then? That the Gentiles, that's the non-Jewish people, that's what the Bible calls for the word for non-Jewish people, Gentiles, who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as the... But as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Uh, Paul, there he quotes, uh, I believe that's a quotation from the book of Isaiah, um, but what he's saying here is this, that you have this ironic thing that was happening in the early church and really even to this day where the Gentiles, non-Jewish people, people who were not entrusted with the law, who did not have the Bible uh, in its you know, early form, uh, uh, didn't have access to God's word, didn't understand any of this. You have them in massive numbers coming to faith in Jesus Christ. They weren't pursuing righteousness, Paul says. They weren't coming uh, after God at all, but they attained it. They, They weren't pursuing it, but they got it. Why? Because they were counting on Jesus in faith. They didn't have the baggage that the Jewish people had in, in their system. And so you have then the, the irony of that next to this issue with Israel. Israel had the law. They had God's standards. They, they knew, they should have known what God was preparing for all along because all along the way, he's telling them that they can't save themselves. All along the way. This is not like suddenly Jesus shows up and now it's like, oh, throw the book out. No, Jesus says, I'm not here to abolish the law. I'm here to fulfill it. The, the whole thing is about Jesus. The whole purpose of the Old Testament points to Jesus. And, and if they were reading it in the, with the right eyes and with the heart of faith, they would have seen it. And many of them did and do. People are being saved from Israel. And, and people are and did in, G, in Paul's day, they were saved. And the early church was made up of predominantly Jewish people in the early days. 
um, because that's who Jesus came to first. So, so here's the thing, though. But as a whole, generally speaking, the broader Israeli, Israelite community of Paul's day, and I think even our own day, did not um, experience the righteousness that the law points to. And here's why. Paul says it. Paul tells us, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it was based on works. The, the, the problem in the, that, that Paul's trying to address to the Romans is that it's not that God's abandoned his people. He has not abandoned his people. He's grafting in new people into the people that he has always had. But, but it's not, but the problem is that there are people that just don't embrace Jesus like they should because they're convinced that they can save themselves. That's really what he's getting at. That they, They're convinced that, that they can actually do this on their own, in their own strength, by their own works, and not pursue it by faith and trust in Jesus. And so then Paul quotes from Isaiah, and here's, again, just uh, the, one of these many, many tidbits throughout the Old Testament that points us to this reality. This is an Old Testament quotation. I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him, in that stone of stumbling and that rock of offense, will not be put to shame. God is giving right there for them this reality that there is going to be a Savior who is going to offend Why? Because he's going to dismantle any hope for you to save yourself. That is offensive to the carnal heart. It is. And I think it's one of the greatest hurdles that a non-believer has to have the Lord open their eyes to. That to see that what they're, why they're resisting Jesus fundamentally is because they believe that they can save themselves. And until we get to that point of realizing I can't, And even if I could, I wouldn't because my heart is so sinful. Until we get past that, we're never going to see God for who he is. And so we've spent a lot of time on verse 3 and 4, and we're going to transition here. But I just want to, before we move on, I just want to ask the question, how many of us in this room have lived or are living right now as if we have to work our way to salvation? I think it's a subtle thing. I think there, there's something even really bizarre uh, about this because as Christians, the foundational point of the Christian life is that only Jesus can save us. And yet something weird happens that when we become a Christian, something switches in our mind and we stop relying on God's grace and start relying on ourselves. That's ridiculous. I think we can all admit that. But it is true. It happens. It happens to every one of us. I'm in that boat as well, where there's something that happens in us that once we're saved, we live as if we have to somehow keep ourselves saved or do something to to, uh, impress him. So we got to move past that. And that's where the psalm begins to go. Look at verse 5, really 5 through 10 these, these last verses, this is just the second point, uh, the second big objective point of Psalm 146. And, and we'll read them. 
It says, blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Blessed is a word that can be translated happy, fulfilled, joyful. I mean, you can fit in some, some different words there, but blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob. Who, who is helping ourselves as we try to save ourselves? Really, we're trying to help ourselves, but we're not accomplishing it. Right? We're, we're depending on princes or we're depending on sons of men or we're, we're counting on ourselves or whatever it is. But, but this psalm just begins to demolish that. It's not, it's not those who count on princes or yourself or other people. It is those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord. That's where things turn. This is where things start to switch. It's this moment of our eyes being opened to the reality that only God can save us. And so here's the point. We've said that true worship begins where self-saving ends. But here's the other, the second point of this psalm, that true worship finds its object in the God who saves us through Jesus. See, our, our whole thing with worship is that it's towards someone or something. Worship is always directed towards someone or something. And, and true worship finds that something or someone in the God of the Bible who saves us through Jesus Christ. Blessed is the God whose help, blessed is he rather whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord is God. And from there, the rest of these verses are just going to articulate who this God is. Let's read. Verse 6, who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them. This is the, the God that we worship. The object of our worship is the God who created all things, created everything by the power of his word, speaking everything into existence. He made everything, heaven and earth, the sea, everything that's in them. Look at the end of verse 6, and then it says, this God who keeps faith forever. That's amazing. That God is the God who keeps faith forever. Even the very faith that we exercise towards him is kept by him and preserved by him and strengthened by him and ultimately given from him. Verse 7, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. That's good news. We want him to do that. 
the Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. Now, as we read through these these characteristics and qualities of God that the psalmist draws out, we see um, so much of Jesus in this. One of, the, one of the primary objectives of this series in the Psalms for us this summer was to draw our attention to Jesus in and through each of these Psalms that we look at. And I think it's really easy for us to see in, in this Psalm how this connects to Jesus. I mean, we, we, we can see here all throughout the scriptures, I can just give you a whole bunch of things. I want to zero in on, on one particular thing. Um, but let's just start real quickly with who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them. Is that Jesus? Yeah, it is, according to the scriptures. Colossians chapter 1, among other passages, but Colossians, if I can flip over here. Um, let me see, God's Electric Power Company. Yeah, there we go. Okay, that's how I remember the order of those. Okay, um, Colossians 1, 15. This is talking about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now that firstborn doesn't mean he was the first person created. It means that he's the authority over creation. And here's why we can say that. For or because by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through him and for him. That's crazy. Jesus is not the first created being. He is the eternal God who has always existed. And we know that he's not the firstborn in the created sense but is actually the creator, the authority over creation because all things were created through him and for him. That's amazing. We, we see that Jesus is the creator God that we worship. We, we see that he executes justice for the oppressed who gives food to the hungry. Isn't that displayed in the ministry of Jesus, particularly John chapters 5 and 6, where he's feeding 5,000 people with, with bread and, and, and then talking in that about how he's the bread of life? that he's providing not only for the physical needs of the people around him and caring for the oppressed people in his day, those that were poor and disenfranchised and and broken and, and run over by the establishment. Jesus went to those people. He loved those people. He provided for those people. He healed those people and he got a lot of flack for it. A lot of flack for it. He, he healed a man's withered hand on the Sabbath day. The day that Jesus chose to heal the man's hand was significant in that, right? He, he healed intentionally on the Sabbath day just to highlight the hard-heartedness of the people that led Israel in those days. He chose a day that they would get up in arms about because he broke the law by doing good for someone who couldn't work or couldn't provide in any way because his hand was disabled. He, he heals that man and then he takes a whole bunch of flack from the, 
religious leaders and uses that as a way to just bring out the, the fact that they're just huge jerks, you know? And that's what he, that, so much of what Jesus is doing is that. It's just showing how big of jerks these guys were. We see here that the Lord sets the prisoners free. We, we, we see in the ministry of Jesus the, the healing of oppressed and in, enslaved people to demonic forces. We see people who have demons being released from that. In particular, we see in Mark chapter 9, we see the example of the man who was so oppressed by these demonic beings that he was literally cast out of his entire community. He was chained out in the graveyard and he kept breaking the chains because the strength that these demons had. He was literally imprisoned by these these demonic beings and Jesus comes and just frees him and completely changes him. These are, these are microcosms, these are prototypes of what God will ultimately do for us through Jesus. Jesus' earthly ministry was prototypical of, of what he would do ultimately um, through his death on the cross. He's preparing us for the freedom that we would ultimately have from our sin. And he sets us free from sin. He opens the eyes of the blind. How many blind people did Jesus heal? Several, at least, that we have recorded. Famously in John chapter 9, we see this is a long chapter. We're not going to unpack all of it. Um, But Jesus heals this man who had been born blind. Um, So he'd been blind his whole life. and, And he was, because of the society that he lived in, there was no disability, social security, or anything of that sort. So he would have been forced to beg. And, and Jesus uh, steps in and he heals him. And, and he does this um, in a really great way. I mean, he just tells him, basically just says, hey, you know, I'm going to put some mud on your eyes and then you're going to go wash in this pool and you're going to see and, and the guy does it, and he can see. And, and then that just kind of creates this huge uproar because people knew this guy. They knew he had been blind. Now, they, now he's not, and, and everybody's confused. And eventually the Pharisees get involved, and the Pharisees begin to freak out about this because here's this man who can open the eyes of the blind. If that's, that's in the, the Old Testament quite a lot, that phrase, that he can open the eyes of the blind. So they're seeing something that's potentially dangerous to their power, and they don't like that. And so they bring this man in to be interrogated, this blind man who, uh, who's no longer blind. They're interrogating him, asking him, who did this? How did he do it? And the guy's like recounting his story like a thousand times. And, and, and ultimately, this man just kind of goes through this whole thing. He's like, I don't know who he is, but, you know, but I can just tell you I couldn't see yesterday, and now I can see. I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what you want me to say. And, and, and he begins to just kind of continually work through this. And, and finally, Jesus meets him. Uh, after all of that is, is said and done, and actually at the end of the day, the 
the Pharisees cast the blind man, the former blind man, out of the synagogue. They don't let him worship there anymore. They cast him out because he was pressing too much on on their issues. And so verse 35 says, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, Jesus goes and finds this man because the man didn't know where to find Jesus, so he comes to him. And he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him. Those were intentional words, right? You have seen him. He couldn't see yesterday, so that was, that's significant. You've seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said this, For judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. So what does he mean by that? He came into the world to basically divide this line between those who don't believe they can save themselves and God's going to open their eyes and those who do believe they're going to save themselves and somehow have convinced themselves that they can see, he's going to show them at the end of the day you can't. You can't see. You might think you can see, but you can't. I'm, so he's, he's making this, this division between those who can't save themselves and know that they can't and that they're going to have their eyes opened and those who can believe they can see, believe they can save themselves and ultimately it'll show that they are blind all along. And here's why that's significant. Verse 40, some of the Pharisees near him heard this and they said to him, are we also blind? They, they're, they're kind of, they're not stupid. They're, they're smart people. They know he's talking about them. Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now you say we see and your guilt remains. He's, he's telling them this reality. If you recognized your need for me, I'd open your eyes. But as long as you think you don't need me to open your eyes, you're, you're as blind as anyone that you've ever met here in this story, right? He's saying you're, you're blinder than the man who was born blind. And your guilt remains. See, see we see throughout this psalm, this, this continual thing that just points us to Jesus over and over again in here. So here's the thing, that if we're going to truly worship God the way he wants to wor- us to worship him, we have to worship him through Jesus And Jesus is the only one who can create the world. He's the only one who can open the eyes of the blind. He's the only one who can set prisoners free. He's the the only one who can actually do for us what we need. Will we trust him? Will you trust him? Even in your hard seasons that you may be in right now, you may be in a season of spiritual warfare. You may be in a season of physical need. You may be in a season of financial trouble. You may be in a season of, of just brokenness and sin. And you know what? Jesus can meet you in those things. He's not going to f- fix all your problems right here, right now, as if he's a magic genie. It's not like trust Jesus and you're going to have that Mercedes you always wanted. But you will find peace within that cannot be given anywhere else. You will find 
protection and care and love and support and, and the, the Spirit of God to come alongside you in your trials. See, we, we've been so convinced, I think, in our, in our day, in our society, that if we have problems, we're outside of God's will. When Jesus said, you will have trouble. Why do we not believe Jesus? You will have trouble, and yet what we have is the assurance that he's with us in our trouble. That's the assurance of the scriptures. That's the assurance of the gospel. It's not that we won't have trouble. It's that we'll have Jesus in it, and he'll get us through it to his glory and in his way. He is a God who's powerful and can save and can bring justice to the oppressed and food to the hungry and all these other things. But what he gives us most of all is the help and the hope that we need. You cannot live your life without hope. That's, there's that old saying, you can live for, you know, three, 30 days without food, right? Three, three days without water, three minutes or so without air, whatever it is. But you can't live a second without hope. Now, here's the truth. That, there's truth in that. And, and that's why Jesus is our hope. We need him. We need him and only him. He's also our help. He will meet us in our needs and he will get us through our trials and he will bring the help that we need. It may not be the help that we expect, but he will give us what we need. And he's powerful to do it if we trust him. And so let's, let's take this time to, to, to trust him, to, to internally, in our hearts, ask him to give us the faith and to keep that faith in us. Take this moment as we worship, as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. Take this time to just internally work through those things and give to him what you need to give to him. Confess the sins that are, that are in your life that need to be confessed. But, but ask him for the help that only he can offer. He's available and he's readily uh, able to help you if you call out to him. We'd invite you to do that. But let me pray for us as we transition our time. Father, we, we are grateful to you that you have given us our help and hope in Jesus. And I, I want to ask you, God, that you would um, do with this message what we need, what each of these people need, what I need. Um, we may need different things. And I'm going to trust you, God, to take it and do something with it. I just pray, God, that as we quiet our hearts in, and prepare to, to respond to you in worship, as we prepare to respond to your, your initiating love and um, the, the reminder of the cross that we will have in a moment as we partake of the Lord's table. Would you meet us here? Would you, we know you're here, but would you tangibly meet us here? Would you, would you speak to our hearts? Would you help us even now? And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>